My friend Tony usually showed up for church for one event every year. And it was the annual trip over to Pulaski, Tennessee, from Lewisburg, Tennessee to Pulaski, Tennessee, where we went to the very large Methodist church and we experienced what was called Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames. Not literally, this was a production, a play. This was kind of the Christian alternative to haunted houses during the fall. And in small town church cinematic excellence, stories were acted out of people who who died. They were driving along in their car and someone would have a heart attack. And then all of a sudden, uh, they're standing before the judgment seat of God. And what's going to happen to them? Folks who had overdoses, standing before Christ. What's going to happen to them? Christians and non-Christians. And some were ushered into heaven's gates through white sheets that were hanging down gold, spray-painted bricked roads into the arms of a pert model look-alike who was supposed to be Jesus. Others through plastic flames that were kind of blowing in the air and fog machines and recorded sounds of hissing demons, they were ushered into hell's flames. And it was quite terrifying, especially for my friend Tony, who for at least two years in a row, and I think it may have been three the more I thought about it, I would look over at him during the response time as the pastor, after, after all of the scenes had been played, some folks went to heaven, some folks went to hell, and, and you were supposed to be moved by that, and you don't want to go to uh, hell, you want to trust Jesus and go to heaven, and so there was a response time, and the preacher would be up front, every head bowed, every eye closed. And I would watch my friend Tony, scared to death, filling out a commitment card. And for at least two times, he looked at me and said, will you go up with me? And I would go up with him, him and another friend. We would go up to the, the altar with him. And eventually we were ushered into a room and someone would come in and, and they would sit down and they would counsel my friend Tony and they would pray a prayer with him and I would enjoy a piece of pizza while the youth group waited out in the van. Some of you have experienced this. And then the next day at school, Tony acted as if nothing had ever happened. And to be honest with you, as years went on, Tony got quite rebellious, and it was obvious those moments had really no effect on his life. And we rarely saw him at church except for that time of the year when we went. It was sort of like his uh, spiritual moment every year. And he was going to get right with God. Now, we've all probably seen that happen. Some of us have probably been engaged in that sort of experience where we are worked up emotionally and we make commitments before God. And then we even get frustrated that those things do not pan out and we wonder why. Well, this is the way the book of Nehemiah ends. Remember, the wall is finished. They have had weeks of worship service, Israel, where they have repented of their sins. They have stood before God and they have acknowledged that, that we have served foreign idols 
And we deserve to be cast out from your presence. They have confessed their sin. They have conf- uh, commit, committed to, to live as a holy people. They have literally signed their commitment cards. And then we get to chapter 13. And we wonder what happened. <laughs> we wonder what was that all about? Why did that have no lasting effect? Remember, Nehemiah comes at the end of the Old Testament. And after Nehemiah, we will hear Malachi, who will pronounce judgment on the people of God. And then there are 400 years of silence. And we look back and we think, what about their commitment? What about their confession? What about their repentance? What happened? In Nehemiah chapter 13 and The first three verses we see here, just to summarize those verses, we see that the wall around the city was to be a vivid sign that Israel was to be separate from the nations and separate from idol worship, the pagan religions all around them. And as the the dedication of the wall ends, we find that the pagan idol worshipers are asked to leave the city. They are literally purging the city of false teaching, idol worship, as the Ammonites and the Moabites are asked to leave. And then we get down to verse four, and we read this. Now before this, in light of this separation from the nations, what we're gonna see here is there is already an enemy in the temple. They are to be separated from their enemies, from pagan idol worshipers. And we see here there's an enemy in the temple. Notice as verse 4 continues, in light of this, before this separation, Eliashib, the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of God. Here we find the servant of God, a priest who has been given the responsibility to, to keep the offerings in order. to to keep all of the sacrifices in order, what it would take to run the temple. He was in charge, it says, of the, the chambers of the house of God. We might say the storage areas. He was in charge of temple inventory. And so what does he do with one of these chambers? Notice he was also related to Tobiah, who throughout Nehemiah, we, we hear of this man over and over who's an enemy of God. He's a Jew who lives as an Ammonite, and he's built alliances with, with other enemies who oppose Nehemiah the whole way. And so what does this priest do for him? Verse 5, he prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously, and that word previously is very important, at one time... In the past, they had put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, all of these things that were to be used for sacrifices, and all of these things, notice, which were given by the commandment to the Levites, singers and gatekeepers, and the contributions of the priest. And so this one chamber was used for all of the offerings that were to be brought, that were to provide for the priesthood. The singers, the gatekeepers, those who perform the sacrifices in this warehouse, all of those offerings were, and this, is, this would have been the livelihood of the priesthood. 
This is where they would have gone for food and supplies also. But notice what this priest does, who is related to this enemy of God, enemy of the people of God, this political snake. He turns this area, this storage area, into a downtown apartment for a false teacher. There's an enemy in the temple. Supposed to be separated from the enemies of God. And here this priest brings this enemy into the temple and provides him living quarters. Notice verse 6. While this was taking place, and Nehemiah wants to be clear, while that was going on, I was not in Jerusalem. I wasn't there. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon... I went to the king. Now remember, Nehemiah remains an employee of the Persian government. And so he is traveling back and forth. And he is serving as a governor on behalf of Persia over Jerusalem. And so there was a certain time where he had gone back to Artaxerxes. And after some time, I asked to leave leave of the king. And I came to Jerusalem. And he comes back. He wants to be clear. I wasn't there when that was going on. That wouldn't have happened under my watch. And then I discovered the evil of Eliashib, what he had done for preparing to buy a a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And we're not shocked by that, right? If If you've been with us throughout the book of Nehemiah, he gets frustrated a lot. He gets angry a lot. Nehemiah exemplifies faithful frustration for the glory of God. And here we see it again. And so what does he do? Politely ask what's going on, sets up a meeting with both guys, and we're going to resolve the conflict together. No, I threw all of the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Can you imagine the scene? Nehemiah's back in town. Where is he? Oh, he's downtown throwing furniture out into the streets. He wants to make a public spectacle of what's going on. He wants the people to see this should not be happening. Now, often we think about Nehemiah and we we realize he's not Mr. Nice Guy. But in this moment, we have a very clear picture of someone else who threw furniture out of the temple. And his name is Jesus. Sometimes the glory of God requires this sort of faithful, righteous indignation. And notice what he does. Verse 9, then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers. And I brought back to their vessels to the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. Now, there's a pattern and we see all the detail in the way Nehemiah describes things. He wants to get every item right. But there's a pattern here of restoring order that we see throughout this chapter. And he brings all of these offerings, all of of the instruments of worship, what it would take for the priest to, to live out their role back into the temple. Verse 10, and I also found out that portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. And so if this temple storage is empty, and this is where the priests find their livelihood. This is how they perform their duties, where they they get the resources for that, and it's empty. What are they going to do? 
Well, they have to travel out of Jerusalem back to their homelands around Judah, and they have to go back to working their fields. They have to go back to providing for their families. They are taken away from the temple, so there are no sacrifices going on, and so it gets worse and worse and worse. There's an enemy in the temple, and there are no sacrifices at this point. Notice verse 11, so I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? Remember chapter 10, we will not forsake the house of God. And immediately Nehemiah comes back to town, probably somewhere around 12 years of going back and forth. And on this one occasion, he comes back and the temple is a mess. And he reminds them, you said you would not neglect the house of God. And so again, we see this pattern I gathered them all together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, the wine and the oil into the storehouses. And I pointed as treasurers over the storehouses, Shalemai, the priest, Zadok, the scribe, Padiah, the Levites, and as their assistants, Hanai and Zakor, son of Matani. And they considered, for they were considered reliable and their duty was to distribute to the brothers. Now, this isn't a personal agenda toward the priest or toward Tobiah. Nehemiah comes back into the city and he is committed to holiness. And he goes to confronting people and he goes to correcting things and he goes to cleansing things and he sets things back in order. He is restoring holiness and worship in the city. And notice what he says, verse 14. Remember me, O God, concerning this. And do not wipe out my good deeds. So after he restores order in the temple, he prays to God. And he says, remember me. Remember what I have done. And do not blot out or wipe out or forget my good deeds. Now what's interesting is that word good deeds there. It's actually the word hesed. And we've talked about what that means of God throughout Nehemiah. It is his loving kindness. It is his commitment to our good no matter what. And and so Nehemiah says, in light of this horrible, difficult situation, I am doing everything I can, God. Remember my loving kindness to you. You have been faithful. I'm going to be faithful to you. God, please do not forget all that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. See, Nehemiah knows judgment is coming on the people of God again. And he stands before the people of God and says, God, don't forget what I've done. Don't don't look past what I've done here. Don't look past my faithfulness. Verse 15, and in those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grape, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. So we've seen an enemy in the temple and now we're going to see enemies on the Sabbath. Now remember, Sabbath means to cease. That's what the word means, to stop. And the people of God were commanded to stop working one day out of the week and rest. Now, why were they commanded to do that? They were to remember that they are not God. You stop working and you rest. You remind yourself you have to rest. And on the Sabbath, you got you got to back away from business, commerce, working your field, and you have to trust God. You're not God. You have to trust God. 
And you're to remind yourself of this one day a week. You need rest. Now, this made them distinct among all people. As we see here, when the enemies of God get into Jerusalem, what are they doing? Working. The people of God were to rest on Saturday, on the Sabbath. What does Nehemiah do? He warns them. I warned them on the day when they sold food. And so he walks into the city on a Saturday, and there's hustle, and there's bustle, and there's business going on. And by the way, the way this is described here, there's lots of hard work, the wine press. There, there's these massive loads of, of produce that are being brought into the city. And Nehemiah is saying, what in the world is going on? And he, so he stands up and he rebukes them and he warns them. Verse 16, the Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. In Jerusalem itself, these were sort of like pirate-like people who brought food in from foreign lands, from the sea. And so what does he do? I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? So he said, who's in charge here? Who made these decisions? And so he bust into the officials' house, the leaders' houses. What are you doing? You are profaning the Sabbath day, meaning you are treating it like any other day, unholy. Verse 18, did not your fathers act this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us in this city because of this? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Throughout Israel's history, the first sign that they did not trust God was the Sabbath was treated as unholy. They worked on the Sabbath. They forgot about the Sabbath. We're providing for ourselves. We don't need to rest. And Nehemiah said, it's happening again. God sees it and wrath and judgment is coming. Verse 19, as soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors be shut and I gave orders that they should not be open until after the Sabbath. He puts the city on lockdown. Nothing is to be done here. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath. Now remember, Nehemiah's servants are Persians. <laughs> and so here you have Persians who are protecting Israel's Sabbath. How ironic is that? Then the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. He says, even after I did that, I ran everybody out of the city. And what did the pagans do? They began to set up shop and carts outside of Jerusalem. And the people of God began to talk. If you, if you really want to make some deals on Saturday, just step outside the gate. Some fresh fish out there. The enemy will not stop coming. Notice what he does. I warned them and said, why do you lodge outside of the wall? If you do so again, I love this phrase right here, I will lay hands on you. <laughs> Nehemiah doesn't play. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. You're going to get these hands. And they're gone. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. So he puts priests out front, priests with swords. Again, the pattern, confront, correct, cleanse, restore. 
But then the pattern, also prayer. Remember this also in my favor. Restores order in the temple. Remember my loving, remember my good deeds, my loving kindness to you, God. And then remember this, be gracious, oh my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. I have been faithful, please be faithful to me. Nehemiah is pleading out among a wicked, perverse, corrupt people. God, please look upon my faithfulness. I am doing everything I can for your glory. Verse 23. In those days, I also saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of the children there spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. So we've seen an enemy in the temple, enemies on the Sabbath, and here we see enemies in the family. Nehemiah begins to realize that there is intermarriage going on. And as we said throughout, this wasn't some form of racism. The people of God were commanded not to be unequally yoked with pagan idolaters. And we see specifically here why. Because they begin to learn other languages. And again, that's not some sort of prejudice. If, if their children aren't learning Hebrew, then they don't know the word of God. And within one generation... Those who follow Yahweh are gone. The issue is if they don't know the word of God, they're not going to know the Lord their God. Verse 25, I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. It just gets worse every time. It heightens. I warned them. Threw the furniture out. I told them I was going to whip their tails. And then here... I just started doing it. I cursed them and I beat some of them and I pulled out their hair and I made them take an oath in the name of God. You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourself. Again, Nehemiah understands if you give them over to idol worship, you're giving them over to eternal judgment. There's application for us there too. Making sure our children know the scriptures. But we see this here and we say, what in the world, Nehemiah? He's, he's lost it here. He starts beating people and literally pulling out their hair. Now, the, to flog someone was to be a public act of judgment. And everyone would see it. People were called out into the streets and flogged and beaten at times. And to shave their head would, would identify them as, as a criminal. And here it is, though, Nehemiah says, ain't nobody around here going to do this but me. So he takes the flogging on himself and just pulls their hair out. He had no time for clippers here. He just starts pulling hair out. He just wants to, he wants the people to know they deserve punishment for what they're doing. And whether it's right or wrong, he takes it into his own hands. And then he says, verse 26, Did not Solomon of Israel sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king. Now listen to this. There was no king like him. And notice this. He was beloved by God. He was chosen by God. And God made him king over Israel. Nevertheless, God loved him. God chose him. But nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. 
Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? Now, again, this is to not be unequally yoked. And he points out Solomon. He says, this is the wisest man alive. And God had picked him to be this prosperous king. But we know Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines, which if that's not a problem, that sin led to very vivid idol worship. And so you have God's king who is globally influential, rich, the nations know him, and he begins to take on foreign wives and it leads to idolatry. So the wisest man we know was an idiot for this. And you're doing this very thing. And notice how it affects the people of God. Enemies in the family, and then that leads to enemies in the priesthood. And one of the signs of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sambalot, the Horonite. Now remember throughout Nehemiah, this is another enemy, just like Tobiah, who opposes, who opposes Nehemiah. And here we see that, that the high priest family has married into this enemy's family. And Nehemiah begins to connect the dots. He begins to realize that, that even in the high priest family, there is this intermarriage and there's going to be this false teaching. And so what does he do? I chased him from me. Shows up at his house, knocks on his door, and says, get out of town. And he'd probably heard about the people who had been flogged and had their hair pulled out. And so he runs out of town. But then notice verse 29, again, remember them, O God. Notice it's not remember me. It's remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Here Nehemiah goes from... Remember what I've done. Be gracious and kind to me to know. Remember what your enemies have done and judge them. They have desecrated the priesthood. And notice they have desecrated the, the covenant of the priesthood. At the center of, of the responsibility for Israel to be holy, they were to say God is holy in the temple. And the priests were to lead them in that. And the priesthood has been violated here. And Nehemiah says they deserve to be wiped out. In verse 30, thus I cleansed them from every foreign thing, every bit of idolatry that had come into the priesthood, into the homes, the Torah schools had to be purged of syncretism, and he established the duties of the priest and the Levites in his own work. And I provided the wood offerings at the appointed time for the first fruits. So what does he do here? rebukes, corrects, cleanses, and restores everything. And here Nehemiah says, I'm going to pay for the priesthood to get back to work. I'm going to provide the wood. I'm going to provide the contributions. I'm going to pay the priest myself. And he establishes a new priesthood. But notice how the chapter ends. Another prayer. Remember me, oh my God, for good. Now let's think for a minute how chapter one began. Nehemiah hears the wall is in ruin, and what does he pray? Oh God, remember your people. Remember your people who you promised to be faithful to. You are Yahweh. 
I am who I am, meaning I do what I say, and I have chosen Israel to set my love upon them. Oh God, remember that promise. Love your people. Be committed to your people. And then notice how it ends throughout this chapter. Remember me. And we begin to think, why in the world does he, does he go from remember your people to remember me? And the point is, Nehemiah sees himself as the only one among the people of God who is faithful. And so God, if you're looking to be faithful to a faithful people, the only place you're going to find it is here. With it. I'm doing my best to be faithful, to keep your people faithful. And so remember me, this isn't some sort of self-centered narcissism from Nehemiah. And he's not alienating himself from the people. Remember, he loves God and he loves God's people. In some sense, Nehemiah is standing in between God and the people of God and saying, if you're looking for faithfulness, look to me. I'm the one who's being faithful to your covenant. Look to me. You are faithful to judge, we saw in chapter 1, to scatter your people, to judge them. And I know you're going to judge them again, but before you do, would you remember me? Would you look upon my faithfulness? And one of the things, the three points here to end, the first one, what we see in Nehemiah is faithfulness is success. Faithfulness is success. You see, you can't get to the end of Nehemiah and say, well, success must be a well-constructed wall, a protected and secure people, and an obedient people. If that is your standard for success for Nehemiah, he is a failure. He's failed. He gets to the end and everything he's worked for for 12 years is laid in waste. The wall may look nice, but the people are still corrupt. What does he have to offer God? But I am faithful to you and your glory and your holiness. I, among a people who are unfaithful, have been faithful. Faithfulness is success. There's enemies in the temple. The Sabbath is violated. The families are desecrated. The priesthood is given over to paganism. For 400 years after this, there's going to be silence. How in the world do we look at Nehemiah and say, that's a man of success? Only because he was faithful to God no matter what. Even when at the end he was left with nothing to offer. And the same thing is true in your life. I've stood by the deathbed of too many people who have looked me in the eyes and said they wish they had done more. And they wish they had done things differently. They wish they'd have been a better mom, a better dad. Wish they had worked harder. Wish they had served Jesus better. And the reality is, that's going to be everybody in this room one day. You're going to get to the end and most of your plans are going to be left undone. Understand, I hate that. I have to finish what I start. It drives me crazy to leave things undone. But I will leave this world with a lot of things undone and things I could have done better. And we can commit ourselves to hundreds of things. You can be faithful to thousands of things that will not make your life a success. But there is one thing, and it's the same thing Nehemiah was faithful to, and it was that God has a promise for his people. 
And I'm going to plug my life into that promise no matter what. And God has promised to you and I today, he is going to gather a people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And they're going to gather before the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven. And he has made you a witness by the power of the Spirit. If you're a Christian here today, you have the Spirit within you to witness Jesus as Lord to the ends of the earth. The question is, when you get to the end... No matter what you can look back on and say, that was a success, that was a completed mission, I was good at that. If you are not committed to God's glory revealed in God gathering of people, your life will be a failure. Your job, your family, your resources. And the enemy would love to distract you from that today and make you feel like success is somewhere else. Will you be faithful to God's glory in gathering a people from himself? Nehemiah gets to the end and he says, that's what what I was committed to. Success is in faithfulness. Faithfulness is success. But at the end of the day, your faithfulness will not be enough. The book of Nehemiah reveals to us that there is a deeper problem than what we see from the outside. You will not be able to offer your faithfulness up to God at the end. Because it will be flawed. Nehemiah's faithfulness is flawed. We read through this chapter and we say, what in the world is he doing? Pulling people's hair out, chasing people out of town. Surely those weren't all pure motives. And that's not the point. The reality, at the end of the day, all of our faithfulness will be flawed. And here we see at the end of Nehemiah, there is corruption in the temple, the city, the homes. And what we realize is this begins in the heart Our worst problem cannot be solved with a construction project. It can't. The wall, the city, everything rebuilt, but the people are still wicked and sinful. Why? At their heart. So what Jeremiah said, your heart above all things is wicked and it is deceitful. And as soon as you know how deceitful your heart is, it deceives you into thinking you know how deceitful your heart is. You don't even know how deceitful your heart is, and you never will. And from your heart flows selfish desires to serve myself and rebel against God's will. And this is why the prophet Ezekiel would say, we need a heart transplant. We have to have the Spirit of God reach in and take out our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh that Ezekiel says will obey God, will follow God. But you can't do that on your own. The work of the wall did not solve the condition of the people's heart. And your work will not solve the condition of your heart. It won't. No matter how many commitment cards you fill out each year. You can work as hard as you can, but you can't do anything about that on your own. Faithfulness is success. Your faithfulness is not enough. We have to have the faithfulness of another. You see, we get to the end of the book of Nehemiah, and it it doesn't end happily ever after. It It doesn't end with everyone riding off into the sunset. It doesn't end with Nehemiah being honored before the people of God. Nehemiah, you've worked here 12 years. Can't believe you had to put up with us. Look at all the things you've gone through. No, Nehemiah ends pulling and pushing us to someone else. You see, the reality is we are the Tobiah who deserves to be kicked to the curb. We deserve to be tossed from the house of God. But it was Jesus 
who was drugged through the streets. He was flogged. He had his hair pulled from his head and his beard as he was spat upon. Jesus was not remembered outside of the city of Jerusalem. He was forgotten on the cross. And he was forgotten so that you might be remembered as a son seated at God's table. You need Jesus. Beyond the wall outside of the city, Jesus was forgotten on the cross as the wrath of God poured out upon him. God's wrath that you deserve for your sin, sin that has flown from an un, uh, flowed from an unfaithful heart into your life. You deserve to be on the cross, but his wrath poured out on Jesus. And what did Jesus say on the cross? Not why is the house of God forsaken? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forgotten at the cross so that you might be remembered. And his body was placed in a tomb and it rested on the Sabbath. And God remembered him three days later, raising him from the dead, annulling our marriage to sin and death. And now as former outcast idolaters, we joined by the Spirit of God when we believe in Jesus, make up this beautiful bride, pure, cleansed inside and out by his Spirit that lives within us. Jesus is the one who corrects. Jesus is the one who confronts. Jesus is the one who rebukes. Jesus is the one who cleanses. Jesus is the one who restores us to God. If you came in here today and you're saying, I'm trying, remember me, oh God, for good. You can't say that apart from Jesus. You can't. Only in Jesus covered in his blood, in his cross, covered in his righteousness will God remember you. But we can say to our friend Nehemiah today, God remembered you. God remembered you today. Because today, Nehemiah points us to Jesus. And that's how you want to be remembered, right? Not at the end of the day, lining up all of your faithfulness, all of the things you've done. You want to end your life by saying, remember me, oh God, in Christ. Remember me for Christ. The question in Nehemiah is, Faithful? Has God been faithful? Question mark. He will be as faithful to you as he is to Jesus. There's no question mark about it.